Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Good morning, my name is Tim Stoker. This morning's scripture reading is taken from the small book of Philippians, chapter 1. Verses 12 through 26. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. When I listen to the heart of the Apostle Paul, I'm reminded of the man whose death we noted yesterday, St. Patrick. You know, St. Patrick's Day, even though we've turned it into quite a boisterous holiday, is actually the anniversary of the death of this man who many regard as one of the best, most successful missionaries who has ever lived. I don't know if you know his story. There are a lot of legends around St. Patrick that we don't need to uh, explain or believe. But the story of St. Patrick is fascinating. He grew up in Britain and he was a pagan. He lived the life of a, of a pagan until, oh, about the age of 16 when he was kidnapped by slave traders and taken to Ireland where for about six years Patrick shepherded pigs. He cared for the pigs of a rich farmer in Ireland. Well, even though he was not a believer in Jesus, he seems to think that he had dreams that God gave him. And one of those dreams concerned his escape. He dreamed of a way that he 
could escape from being a slave. And he believed that God gave him that dream. What happened was he dreamed that there was a ship on the coast 200 miles away. And if he could but make it to the coast and get on that ship, he could be no longer a slave. So sure enough, one day he decided he got up enough courage and he walked those 200 miles and he got on that ship and it took him back to his homeland of Britain. When he was there, he began having other dreams. He dreamed about seeing a man by the name of Victoricus over in Ireland. And Victoricus in this dream apparently had letters that were from the people of Ireland. And in these letters, he heard the people of Ireland crying out for Patrick to come back, to come back and give them the gospel. Well, he didn't think he was ready for that, and so he went to France and spent some time in a monastery where he became trained as a pastor. And then finally the day came in which he decided, I'm ready to go back to Ireland, and he did. He went back to Ireland. He was in his 40s at the time, and for the next 30 years, Patrick was an itinerant preacher and pastor in the country of Ireland, spreading the gospel, telling people about Jesus Christ, It is said that he established about a 1,000 or 700 churches and trained up about a 1,000 pastors. By the time of Patrick's death, Ireland was basically a Christian nation. How'd that happen? It happened because he believed in the power of the gospel. And he simply told people about Jesus Christ. In the past few weeks, what we've been looking at is the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, great New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul. And we're taking a few weeks right here in a sort of a mini-series to talk about the gospel. Uh, what motivated Patrick to do what he did so many centuries ago ought to be motivating you and me to do our own job of sharing the good news about Jesus with other people that we know. And so last week, I asked us to commit ourselves to spreading the gospel. Now, if we're going to spread the gospel as a church, we need to know what the gospel is. The word gospel means good news. And in Philippians 1, the passage that Jody read, you heard the word gospel twice. It's in verse 12, where Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel or good news. And it's also in verse 16, I am put here for the defense of of the gospel. In one more verse, verse 27, which we didn't read, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in this chapter, it's in there three times. Now, what does the word gospel really mean? What's the content of the gospel? And I'm going to answer that question this week as well as next Sunday. If you're a Christian this morning, you need to have a good handle on the content of the gospel. And so I'm going to present to you this morning kind of a kind of an outline form that you can take away with you and hopefully memorize it so that as opportunities come your way, you can spread the gospel. You can tell your friends what it is. But also, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, we want to welcome you too. You need to understand the gospel. Maybe you've heard this word. You don't really understand it in its fullness. I'm going to try to walk you through it this morning. So here's the plan. The gospel, in my opinion, consists of three basic parts. You might want to compare it to a shamrock or a triangle with three points. 
Or better yet, I believe that the gospel is like a symphony in three movements. And the three movements are first, our condition. Second, God's solution. And third, how you can experience it. Or, if you will, the application. So the three parts of the gospel are our condition, God's solution, and the application of it to the individual. Please try to remember that because it will help you in your own spiritual conversations. What I'd like to do is give you the first two parts today. And then next Sunday when we come back, I'm going to finish it up with the third part, the third movement of the symphony of the gospel. So first, let's dive right in and talk about our condition Our condition. I want you to look around. Think about what you've experienced this past week in recent days. What do you see? What do you see when you look around our culture, when you read the newspaper, when you turn on the news on TV? You see an intelligent, experienced, skilled staff sergeant in the U.S. Army going crazy and killing 16 Afghan citizens, including nine children. You hear about another bombing in Syria that kills 27 more people and wounds 100 more. You hear about a white man living up in Sanford who kills an apparently innocent black teenager. Look at people's faces. What do you see? You see worry and anxiety and sadness and fear. Listen to the sounds around you. What do you hear? Anger, frustration, complaining, sounds of pride and sounds of prejudice. As I was writing my sermon the other day, I heard a neighbor down the street yelling at his kid and the kid peeling off in resentment in his car. Later on, I heard sirens, the sirens of an ambulance racing to yet another emergency. My wife comes home one day from her job as a, live, uh, as a labor delivery nurse and tells me about a baby who was born dead. The couple's first child. I scan through the TV listings and what do I see? I see shows filled with violence and crime and broken families and cheating spouses and sarcastic political humor and investigations of hoarding and addictions and sex abuse and all kinds of other things. And right here in our own congregation, people are struggling. Struggling with loneliness and cancer and depression and unemployment, fear about the future, unhappiness at home, grief, And a host of other problems. Friends, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with the human race? We're broken. We're very, very broken. And the Bible is very honest about that. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. Astray from what we were meant to be. Because it wasn't always this way. The Bible says that when God created the world, he called it very good. 
God is holy and good and loving and he created human beings in his own image. That means to reflect him, to be like him in many key ways. And when we were created in his image, in the beginning we were holy and happy and loving. But something happened to spoil that picture. And that something is sin. Adam disobeyed God's law. He broke God's commandment in the Garden of Eden. And into our race came sin. But, you know, you can't blame Adam for all of our problems because you and I are sinful too. The Bible says in Romans 3 that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the problem that we need to look at is what is sin? There are all kinds of ideas. And as you're talking with people about it, you need to be able to explain the biblical picture of sin. And if you're still investigating the Christian faith, you need to be able to understand what the Bible and what Christianity says sin is. So I'm going to break it down into three things. What sin is. Try to remember these things. First of all, sin is doing what God forbids. That's kind of its simplest definition, doing what God forbids. We call that sins of commission because you're committing something. You're doing something wrong. For example, God forbids gluttony. Have you ever eaten too much? You're a glutton. The Bible forbids adultery. Have you ever lusted after a girl or a guy to whom you're not married? You're an adulterer. And when I say it's anything you do that God forbids, let's be sure we broaden that to understand that it's not just doing, but words that God forbids and thinking thoughts that God forbids. All of those things would be considered sins of commission. That's pretty bad, but it gets worse. It gets worse because the Bible also says that sin is not just doing what God forbids, but failing to do what God commands. And those we call sins of omission because we're not doing, we're omitting something that God says is important. For example, God requires that you always be thankful. I ask you, are you always thankful? God requires that you always tell the truth. Have you always told only the truth and nothing but the truth? God requires that you help people in need. Have you ever ignored the plight of the poor, the homeless, the unemployed? So sin includes then not only those sins of commission, sins of omission, these things that we do that are wrong, these things that we fail to do that we should have done, but that's still not all. Let's go deeper. And in your own life, you must deal with sin at an even deeper level because there's a third way to look at sin. I'll illustrate it this way. When our kids were little, sometimes they'd hurt each other's feelings and we'd say to one of our children, now go tell your brother you're sorry. So you know what he would do. He would walk over to his brother and say, sorry. We'd tell our kids, go clean up your room. And they'd clean up their room, but they'd stomp their feet all the way up the stairs And then when we went to check on the room, we'd look under the bed and all of the dirty clothes had been swept under the bed. Yeah, they cleaned their room. They said they were sorry. But what's missing? The heart. See, you can do all the right stuff on the outside. 
But if the heart's not right, it doesn't count. There is sin at an even deeper level than what you and I can see. Even in our own mind, there is unconscious, there is secret sin, hiding, lurking in the heart. And if you're going to be honest with your own sin, if you're going to talk with people about the problem of sin, you need to make sure you dig even deeper down to the heart level. Every home's probably got a junk drawer, right? You have a junk drawer in your house? We do. It's right by our refrigerator. I think every house ought to have a junk drawer. It's just a drawer into which pens and paper clips and pencils and tape and, you know, keys and all kinds of stuff get, get lodged. Well, my wife got industrious the other, the other day and she cleaned up our junk drawer. It looks beautiful now. Every piece of junk is now in a little plastic container, all nicely organized. But you know what? It's still a junk drawer. And that's how it is in here. There's a lot of junk in the heart. And you can reorganize it. You can dress it up. You can repaint it. You can buy little plastic organizers for all of the junk that's in the heart. But it's still junk. What's in the junk drawer of your heart? For example, what makes you angry? Is it really righteous indignation or did someone just get in the way of your will be done? Where do you turn for escape? Is it really an innocent diversion or is there an addiction in your life that you're feeding, causing you to hide from yourself and from God and from other people? That's the junk drawer. What do you pray about? You know, think about the content of your prayers. Do you pray to get more of God in your life or to get more from God for yourself? What do you feel entitled to? In other words, how would you fill in this blank? I deserve... What do you organize your life around? Where do you turn to get your identity? When someone tries to correct you, how do you react? All of those questions and many more could be asked. To try to open up your junk drawer and look at the sin that's down there. You know, we come to church, we smile, we put on our best clothes. But everybody here has got a junk drawer. Every human being has a junk drawer. And you need to look at it if you ever will want a savior. See, when we talk about sin, we need to include the heart. We need to talk about and include the attitude, the motivational centers of our lives. We need to look at things like our priorities, right? Our values, our wants, our desires, the things we love, the things we fear. Those are questions you must deal with if you would really get to the bottom of your sin. Because in your heart, you're always trusting in something. You're always looking to something to help you make it through the day. To make you feel better and good about yourself. You're always dreaming about something. Wanting something. Hoping for something that will make your day work for you. For me, 
It was being considered competent and successful. It's been that all my life down in this junk drawer. Even as a little kid, it was all about grades. And then as a teenager, it was all about being a really good athlete. And then when I went off to college, it became being a musician that people would admire. I played guitar and sang in campus coffee houses. And I was on cloud nine when people would come up to me on campus the next day and tell me how good I was. And this junk that was there, this need, this desire, this hope to be considered a success took a back seat when I became a Christian. But it every now and then still rears its ugly head. It still wants to control me. It still wants to be ruling my life and being the thing about which I center my focus and my identity. Do you know what the Bible calls what I'm talking about? It calls it an idol. It calls it an idol. It's a substitute Jesus. It's a counterfeit God. It's something that promises me life, but it doesn't deliver. It's what I sometimes trust in to get through the day. It's something I look to for my identity. It's something I look to for my comfort and my justification. What's yours? What's your idol? What is it that's really jumping out of that junk drawer often in your life? Is it success? Money? Sexual pleasure? The freedom to do as you please? Is it your kids? Your good looks? The fact that you've got somebody that you can date? What is it that gives you that feeling of being one, of of having arrived? Of being somebody? Tim Keller says this, and I love his writing. I thought this would be good to share. The human heart is an idle factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them. That word deify means we put them on God's throne. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. So that's another way to look at sin, isn't it? Sin is doing what God forbids, failing to do what God uh, requires, and trusting in anything besides God to find purpose. When you define sin that way, you start to realize that you are more sinful than you thought. That's why we like to avoid those questions, because we don't like to think that we are more sinful than we thought. But that's true. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, but Mike, aren't you going a little bit overboard? Good night. What's got into you? Who says God expects perfection? Anybody thinking that way? Any friend that you've talked to? Who says God expects perfection? After all, I am surely not perfect, but there are a lot of good things in my life, you might say. And, and I believe my life is organized around the principle that if, if the good outweighs the bad, That's a good life. That's acceptable to God and he will allow me into heaven. Well, let me answer the question. Who who says God expects perfection? Jesus. Jesus does. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, You must therefore be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect. That means not one sin can be on your record. 
if you hope to please God by what you do. Alabama on Friday got beat by Creighton by how many points? (laughs) There was applause. (laughs) One point, Creighton beat Alabama, and Alabama is out of the tournament. How many sins did it take Adam and Eve to get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Just one. They're out of the tournament. Let's suppose you have a really good day. And over the course of your lifetime, you only maintain three sins a day. Three times a day. Do you do what God forbids, fail to do what God commands, or allow something in your junk drawer to dominate you? Three times a day. Over the course of a year, you would have accumulated a thousand sins on your record. And if you live to be a 70-year-old man or woman, you will have had 70,000 sins to show to God. And Jesus said, you must be perfect. See, that's our problem. In Psalm 24, the man who wrote that psalm asks this question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Have you ever read Psalm 24? That's the question that it opens with. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? You and I would put it this way. Who can get to heaven? And here's the answer in Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. A clean junk drawer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what's false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. I ask you, In your natural condition, do you have perfectly clean hands? Do you have a pure heart? If you've ever put something or someone on the place that God must occupy in your life, that means you have failed. You have already passed, uh, I mean, uh, failed the test. And there's no way that you can have clean hands and a pure heart and stand before God in his holy place. You see, we're in quite a fix, aren't we? We're in quite a fix. We cannot save ourselves. And to make matters worse, God must punish sin. It says in Exodus chapter 34 that he will by no means let let the guilty go unpunished. God must punish sin. He is too holy, too pure to look on evil. And so if we're standing before God, well, here, I'll do it this way. Let's suppose that this hand represents God in heaven and this hand represents me And the Bible says, God created me for a relationship with Him. He loves me. He desired to have me in relationship with Him. He made me in His image to experience Him and walk with Him and serve Him. But here's a problem, and I brought this big book along for a reason. Let's suppose this book represents all of my sin. Written in this book now would be a lot bigger than this. And the type would be a lot finer print than that if it contained all my sins. But let's suppose that this big book here is the record book of my sin. When God looks down at me, he cannot just ignore this. He cannot just ignore this. He must punish this. And so you see that blocks my relationship with him, doesn't it? That's our condition. That's our problem. And the Bible tells us real clearly that that's a serious problem that requires a serious solution. 
So let's move on from our condition to God's solution to that problem. God's solution to our brokenness, God's solution to our sin is Jesus. Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who became man. It says in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, which is just another name for Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That means that He left heaven and came here to earth to be our Savior. What did Jesus do? Here's an easy way to remember it. You've heard this before here at UPC. Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. This means that Jesus came here to save us. Like we sang about earlier, he rescued us. He threw us the life preserver, but he didn't just throw it from a distance. He actually came to where we were drowning and put our arms through it and hauled us back to shore. Jesus had clean hands and a pure heart. He did not lift up his soul to an idol. All 33 years of his human existence here on the earth, he perfectly obeyed the Father. He fulfilled the law. He did everything that you and I were supposed to do. And then one day he was betrayed and arrested and condemned and crucified on a Roman cross. The reason he was crucified was so that he could take our place to experience our death and be the source of salvation for all who put their trust in him. I was reading in the book of Numbers the other day, which is a book of the Bible you simply must not ignore. It's got so many fantastic stories in it. In Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel are marching up from Egypt to the promised land. And they're grumbling and complaining, kind of like my kids did when we made them go clean their room. They were complaining about the food. We have no water. We have no food to eat. We're sick of this manna that God gives us out of the heavens. And so God sent them uh, snakes, poisonous snakes that bit them. And many of the people died because of what they were doing, all the complaining they were doing. And then they begged Moses, God, I mean, uh, Moses, pray to God for us. And Moses didn't just tell the people to stop complaining and everything will be okay. Moses understood that a serious problem needed a serious solution. So Moses went to God, he prayed to God, and God told him, make a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole. And when the people of Israel who are bitten by these snakes will look at that bronze snake, they will be healed and they'll be delivered. And the significance of that event is found in John chapter 3, where we're told this. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. See, if you look to Jesus, that is the solution. Jesus Christ came to do what you and I could never do about our sin problem. We cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we try. God must take the initiative. And that He did by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. There was a song I remember from some years back uh, in my early Christian life that went something like this. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And that someone, of course, is Jesus Christ. This record book of sin that I was talking about a little while ago, here's what happened. When Jesus Christ came, he left heaven, came to earth, died on the cross, and God laid my iniquity upon him so that he bore my sin. 
When God looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw my sin and your sin, uh, you know, accumulating on him. So that now, having been freed from guilt, God and I can have relationship. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing my sermon on Saturday. That's when I usually put it all together. And it was about 6 o'clock in the evening. I finished the document. And as I always do, I closed the document so that I could save it. I'd worked on it since probably 9 a.m. that morning. I closed the document and the little window popped up that said, do you want to save the changes? Yes, no, cancel. I always click yes, but for some reason I click no. I click no. I wasn't paying attention. I click no. The window closed. Everything that I had done since 9 or 10 o'clock that morning was gone. I don't have a Mac. I have a PC. That document was gone, never to be retrieved. I tried, I called people. I looked online. It was impossible. It was gone. That's how gone your sins are when they're transferred to Jesus Christ. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as east is from west, so far has He removed our sins from us. Have you ever wondered why it says says east and west instead of north and south? I think it's because, and this is a layman's amateur interpretation, but if on a globe you go north, pretty soon you're going south. But if you go east, you're always going east. There is an infinite distance between east and west in Psalm 103. As far as east is from west, God has removed your transgressions from you. That's the gospel. That's God's solution to the awful condition in which we are as broken, sinful people. This cross up here is up there for a reason. The cross was not merely a symbol of sacrificial love, the example of which we are supposed to follow. No, the cross is that life preserver that Jesus threw to us, walked or swam to us, put his arms around us and hauled us back to shore. Yes, it's true. You are far more sinful than you realize but you're far more loved than you can imagine. Now the question is, how can you, how can any person be sure that God has solved the sin problem in your life? Come back next week and you'll find out. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you this morning that though we are broken, though we are sinful, Though we have accumulated on our record not just 70, not just 70,000, but an infinite number of sins against you and your holy name. Thank you that though that is true, you have solved the problem through Jesus Christ. And so I pray this, Father, that you will grip us and grab us at the very core of our being. That we as your people might be so in love with this Savior with this rescuer, that we will share that wonderful news. 
And I pray, Father, that if there be anyone here today who has never actually heard this or understood it or made it a part of their lives, I pray that today that person will seek you, confess their sin, and put their hope in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this great news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.